GitHub Copilot is an AI tool developed by GitHub and OpenAI to assist software developers by auto-completing code. Copilot kicked off a revolution in software engineering, and AI assistants are now considered essential tools to many developers. Joseph Katsiolades is a cybersecurity specialist and works at the GitHub Security Lab. He joins the show today to talk about Copilot, the future of software development in an AI world, using AI to improve security, and more. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to Joseph's bio and to the Secure Code game, which is an in-repo learning experience that Joseph created to teach how to secure vulnerable code. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Sean Falconer. Check the show notes for more information on Sean's work and where to find him. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. You know, we actually, we got to meet in person a couple months ago at Infobook Shift, so it's great to see you again. Let's start off with some basics. Who are you and what do you do? For sure. I consider myself a security specialist who likes to make security easy for developers. My journey started from early teenage years. I have, I had a strong passion for cybersecurity since then. This passion translated into studies, and then I started my career in cybersecurity as a consultant, advising directly chief information security officers for Fortune 500 companies. But I was constantly catching myself missing the, the software, missing the forefront and shaping the future. So I decided to make a shift and be part of a team that is focusing on the security of open source software. I think what attracts me to security is the fact that it's so multidimensional. There are parts of security that are about cryptography, forensics, intelligence, reverse engineering. But my absolute love is for software security. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think that a lot of times, you know, people do sort of bucket security is just like, you know, one thing this like monolith, but there's so many different parts of it you could be working on a lot. It's kind of like everything in sort of the tech world. Like when you start to actually learn more about it, the more you realize, oh, I don't know anything about this thing. It's way more, you know, big and complex than I realized. In terms of your studies, what did you actually study to in university that led you initially to a career in cybersecurity? So in the beginning, I started with computing engineering so that I had a strong foundation of software. My classmates are working as software engineers. I am the one who decided to make the jump into a master's in cybersecurity engineering so that I could focus on a multitude of domains there for cybersecurity. And during the studies, I was having, I had the chance to do research and my research focused on cryptography and in general, how I could hack innovations in technology in ways that haven't seen before. When you think about your career in security and also what you've been seeing in the space, like, are we getting better at actually making more secure systems or are we always kind of playing catch up to those that are, you know, potentially the bad actors that are attacking these systems? It's a great question. I'm thinking a lot about that as the year goes. I'm like, hmm, similar question. So I concluded that software is evolving exponentially. Because it's natural. Technology is the foundation of everything. We interact with technology from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed. 
it's normal to progress exponentially. And security is indeed playing the catch-up game growing up linearly. I think in the past, it's fair to say that security was growing less rapidly because it was an area that it wasn't so popular, but with, of course, high-profile breaches and slowly, slowly touching every aspect of our life, people consistently and slowly becoming more privacy aware and more privacy conscious as technology comes to other aspects of our lives, security becomes, of course, more important, which is natural to become better at it as there's more effort, time and money being invested in security, more skills are being built as a result of that coming from more education. On the other hand, security will naturally, by definition, follow up from technology. It will be behind it to secure it. This means that there are always going to be a gap there, but it's in our hands to take security more seriously. And instead of having security being an afterthought and having it bolted on later, it's up to us to understand that it's a mindset. Security should start from the beginning and be integrated in every aspect of course, technology and the software lifecycle. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. It's like the difference between, you know, buying a car that doesn't have seatbelts in it and then later after an accident, oh, maybe seatbelts is a good idea. I guess I should, you know, purchase that upgrade to add seatbelts versus essentially secure by default, the car comes with the seatbelts built in so that you don't have to proactively you know, risk essentially an accident and then react to it. You have that there to start with. So you're starting at a good baseline. Of course, other things could happen where you might have to react to it, but you at least have that baseline level of security and you're thinking about that from the get-go. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about the you know future software development. Like I feel like over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of hype around developer experience, developer first companies, community driven growth, API first, basically all the all the terms. And now I, I think in part, thanks to products like GitHub Copilot, AI powered developer experiences. And you know, it's a dangerous game to predict the future. But the good thing is if you're wrong, uh, no one really cares. But if you're right, you look like a genius. So I, this could potentially be your genius moment. So the big question is, what do you think the future looks like for software development in kind of an AI-powered world? It would be very interesting to come back to this podcast a few years later okay. and see how things changed and if we evolved more in other areas. For me, that's fantastic, by the way. I don't mind if I'm wrong or if it's a genius moment. Everything is progress. We are part of it. Indeed, Sean, we are living in exciting times where we progress in so many areas. For me, the past year, since last November, feels sometimes that we had more than a year in a year. It's been so much. I think that indeed we are moving into a future of four dimensions. There are four transformative forces there. I see developer first, AI-powered, community-driven, and secure. Developer first, as you mentioned, is more or less thinking that, yes, software is the foundation of everything and it's built by developers. How do we give to these developers the right tools in order to feel more satisfied, be in position to collaborate more effectively with others, and of course, be productive? When it comes to AI, as you mentioned with Copilot, we are seeing extreme progress. For instance, last year, we had 35% of code being committed 
to GitHub being written by Copilot, while now this number has jumped into 60% for popular languages like Java. Copilot has hit 1 million paid users in 249 countries and regions around the world. And then for communities, community collaboration is something that I feel and live every day, how much it evolves us and brings us to dimensions and research focus as the lab that we haven't thought even before. For example, at GitHub, we host the top 1,000 open source communities and community is a strong part of the GitHub Security Lab. I remember in the past three and a half years, more than 25 critical security vulnerabilities being given to us, contributed to us by our community members. And we are having the GitHub Advisory Database, which includes 2,000 community collaborations every single year. For security, we spoke, uh, we touched a bit before. So I want to touch on a different thing is that we mentioned four elements here, but it's important to understand the interplay between these four elements. When you have good developer experience and good AI, then naturally you have better security. Let's just pick as an example to better understand that the feature that GitHub has announced just last month, early November, in the flagship developer conference we have, GitHub Universe. The feature is called Code Scanning Autofix, and it's all about giving AI-powered suggestions after a pull request has been detected to have a security issue. This is both AI-powered and developer-first. But think about the community's part here. Maybe the problem that has been picked up is coming from the community, is part of someone, a member of the community who has collaborated this vulnerability to us, and we were able to pick it up. So to sum up, there are, I have mentioned four forces, but they are transformative and they have interplays between each other. And every part there is helping the other to evolve even more, of course, towards greater software. Yeah, I think it's what you started saying there at the beginning about how it's only been like a year, but it feels like, you know, it's been like 10 years. Like it's, it's hard to believe that, you know, ChatGPT just had this like one year anniversary because there's just had so much impact on the world as well as things like GitHub Copilot. So in the use case that you're talking about where you do a pull request and then they can alert you about a security issue. Can you walk me through like what is a, like a, a use case or scenario for that? Like how would that maybe help me detect a potential security risk? Can you give me a, like a specific example? Yeah, for sure. As a developer, you can code locally or you can code online. Wherever you are coding at some point, you are going to push some code. When you push this code, then in your pipeline, in your CICD, which stands for Continuous Integration, Continuous Development Pipeline, the best practice is to have security tooling that is going to get started automatically when you push code. Security testing can be static and, of course, dynamic. If we give the example of static security testing, we have the instance of you have pushed the code, this tool is going to read the code and it's going to understand if there are security vulnerabilities there. Before this feature, you will have some alerts that, of course, will be very informative, explaining the line of the problem, why it's a problem, 
with references or where you look for it to understand it and fix it. To fix it, you will go back into your local environment, code something to fix that, push again, and see if you get the same alert or not. Right now, instead of going back and forth, and you are the one writing the fix and trying to understand the problem first, you are going to have the same alert, but then you are going to have an AI-generated suggestion that explains what is the problem, explains why it's a problem, the impact of it, and then you get some PR commit that is going to have a suggestion. Of course, you can modify that or you can just merge it. And this is very fast because we just skip the step of going back and pushing again. It's guaranteed that the PR committed there is passing the test that is being failed, the security test that is being failed. So this is a productivity gain and you have the AI generated suggestion right there in the PR, of course, having others to comment on and improving it. So with the introduction of a lot of AI tooling around enhancing developer experience and enhancing, or, you know, basically our, our productivity in a number of different ways. Do you think it's helping people like enter and stay in like a flow state as a developer more so like essentially is, is this a step function and allowing me to kind of stay in it for a longer period of time or even enter the flow state faster? Yes, absolutely. We have data that prove that. And I can speak from the enterprise perspective. We have a client called Mercado Libre. It's a very big e-commerce website. By market cap, until very recently, they were the biggest company in the area. This client has 13,000 software developers. I'm going to repeat the number, 13,000 software developers, 9,000 of which are using Copilot for the past months. And they have noticed that they are able to produce software 50% faster than before. So if I rephrase it, they are spending 50% less time in the things they were spending time before. And they are matching 100K PRs every single day, 100,000 pull requests every day. This ties very well with the number that 85% of developers feel that they stay on the flow, they don't need to go back and forth in uh, online or in other parts. And I see this also from the people I'm meeting in conferences, in airports, when they see sometimes the stickers I have on my laptop, they tell me how much they save their mental energy in order to do something that for them is more important by not doing stuff that are daunting or repetitive. How is your experience with AI tools? Do you stay more on the flow? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, it's akin to some of the enhancements that you had even historically with like IDEs, where, you know, if you're coding in Java to just be able to automatically spit out all your getters and setters, like, I don't have to type all that stuff out. Like, <laughs> So this is like, a you know, a step function in terms of taking that to the next level. But, you know, where you mentioned earlier that 65% of code commits in the GitHub are being created through Copilot. Is this just changing the sort of focus or attention as a developer, or is it changing what it might mean to be a developer? If 65% of your code is being auto-generated by an AI, does that somehow you know, reduce the value of my skills, or does it allow me to actually leverage my skills in a new, better way because I can apply them to sort of 
harder problems that maybe require human attention. Quick correction for accuracy that the number is 60% for okay. popular languages like Java. I believe that it's an integration between the human and the machine here in the sense that I don't think developers are going to become less capable. They are just going to shift naturally. They are focusing other problems that matter most to them. They are going to be more feature-looking, have more time and mental energy for creativity. And I am seeing this in different areas and scenarios. We have conducted a research, actually, that we asked 500 US-based developers that are senior developers of experience five and 10 years working for companies of 1,000 plus employees. How are you spending your time right now? Meaning like, what do you do most as developers? 32% of these people were writing code. The other 31% was spending the time in fixing vulnerabilities and finding security issues. And the 30% remaining was going in communication with users and communication with the team. They don't really enjoy that middle 31%, which is about finding and fixing vulnerabilities. So when we inverted the question, that was, how would you use the productivity gains you might have from an AI tool? The response was 45% code reviews, 45% security reviews, which reverse the way of thinking in doing tasks and I see it also from myself as a little anecdote for what I do mostly right now, given that Copilot has taken some aspects of my workflow that I didn't really enjoy doing before. They were taking a lot of time. And right now I'm way more productive in those. And I really enjoy that. Every time I see the response, I smile. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it's helping increase the enjoyment of your job because you're taking away some of the things that are maybe less fun about development. Like if if you don't have to spend a lot of time writing all your unit tests and your integration tests because you can automate those yeah. or, you know, a lot of developers don't write like writing documentation. If you can automate that as well, then you're taking that off someone's plate as well to focus on, you know, more complex tasks. I think there's a lot of potential even around code optimization as well, because you can use these tools kind of like your brainstorming buddy for how can I make this thing run faster? And one of the things that traditionally machine learning is really good at is optimization because you can try tons and tons of things much faster than a human could try them. I agree with all. I mean, I'm learning actually from these optimizations. Sometimes I write the code myself and I'm going to ask the question, how would you improve the speed of that? And I'm learning about a new library or a new methodology that I wasn't taught about that. I didn't see it online. And I'm learning on the, on the task, right? From an AI assistant that I see as someone who is not going to replace my job, but I believe that in the future, a developer that is using that will definitely outperform me in anything. And right now, I'm sure a lot of people that are security specialists are outperforming me when it comes to like writing security exploits or security penetration testing, pattern recognition, uh, use cases with AI. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point. Like It can be a way to actually up-level your skills because... You can learn from the AI because it's hard to be an expert in everything, but 
AI systems generally have uh, perfect memory and they can cover you know a lot more breadth of material than you. So it might actually introduce you into new concepts that or new ways of solving problems that you weren't familiar with before. But there's also a nice thing, I think, from you know a junior developer standpoint too, where you might feel more comfortable asking an AI system questions that maybe you would feel less comfortable asking like a senior engineer in the team because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing or you look stupid or something like that. So there's a certain amount of like psychological safety with actually interacting with the AI because you'd be like, oh, I don't know what you know this thing means. Can you please explain that to me? But I might not want to ask that in a job setting because I feel like, oh, like this person's going to not respect me as much or respect my skills as much if I need to ask this type of question. Absolutely. And I would like to contribute another example that I've seen in that. If someone knows that their code is vulnerable in something because they have an alert about it, in the same way we spoke before, of course, you can go online and you can search about this problem and you are going to arrive somewhere that lacks personalization. No matter of the quality, is not going to be about your exact code, the exact variant of the software vulnerability that your code is vulnerable from. Of course, you can ask. Of course, you can choose not to ask for the reasons you just mentioned. And if you ask Copilot or an AI assistant, you know, explain this to me. The explanation you are going to have is going to be tailored on the code on the context you give, which is amazing because you are going to have someone which is there for you 24-7, explaining, getting follow-ups, and basically in a way that, as you mentioned, you don't mind too much how they are going to think about me if I'm not so skillful or if I should know that and so on. Do you think that there's unique challenges in the enterprise world that where AI can essentially help large scale teams in a way that we haven't been able to help them previously. Like you mentioned the company in South America that has, I think, 30,000 developers all you know working in 100,000 PRs a day and so forth. Like the types of challenges that are gonna run into as an engineering organization is probably a lot different than necessarily the, you know, the five person startup that's like hacking away on, on a project. Like if you have run into a problem, you can just you know tap someone on the shoulder or send them a Slack message. Harder to do that when you're at 30,000 people. It's a great question, Sean. I believe that as an organization is getting bigger and bigger, then things might become slower. So with AI, you can bridge this gap when it comes to the speed of developing something or in general, the amount of research that can be needed to internally agree on something. You know, in general, I like to think about big enterprises as big ships and smaller startups as like ships that are very fast moving. For instance, let's think about vulnerability remediation. I know that I give you a lot of uh, security examples that comes from my background. As a company gets bigger, systems become more complex. You have naturally more third parties working with you. Supply chain becomes more complicated to manage. And in general, the lines of code grow. I believe with fine tuning of AI models that are offered to customers, there's the chance to have a more personalized approach when it comes to the specific organization. It can range from styling to suggestions to what libraries are used to what you avoid. And in general, big organizations are expected to have more data 
to provide in order to fine tune that model. So you have a challenge there, which is to, oh, how long does it take to onboard someone when there's super long history of systems, code complexity is high, technical debt is very high. And there's an opportunity there for AI to minimize that gap. Of course, some startups that are starting right now can build these problems. They can build their debt slowly, slowly. So like you mentioned in the beginning with documentation, when it comes to producing a source of knowledge for people that they can ask and get back responses, this can be more clean because you can have your AI assistant that is your friend, your senior developer next to you, helping with these unique challenges. Of course, every organization is different. Every industry is different. Code is never the same, but there are some patterns out there that are similar for organizations. And that is why even Copilot at its generic version, it's a fantastic tool. And the numbers we have touched on before are about the version that pretty much everybody in the world is using right now. Yeah, I think like onboarding and getting someone up to speed and actually productive in a large enterprise as an engineer is a really good use case. Because when I worked at Google, we would be basically not do anything for the first six months because they're just learning how things like work there. And you're introducing yourself to a code base that, you know, has been around for like 20 years. So it's a lot to like take in. And it just takes a long time to kind of get up and feel comfortable, even if you're really experienced. So in any of these large organizations where you're having, you know, 10,000 plus engineers that have been working on something for a long time, just if you can shortcut the time to get up to productivity by even, you know, 20%, that's massive savings in terms of the company and also a much more satisfying experience for the people who are new engineers on the team, because it doesn't feel good to just, you know, kind of be sitting there twiddling on your thumbs, consuming documentation for, you know, half a year. Now that you have mentioned onboarding, I have another example to contribute, which is, it's not AI related. It's another thing that we are using internally and our engineering has shifted completely using that. It's called Code Spaces and offers the chance to instantly start coding inside a browser. Imagine having a virtual machine. Therefore, you have an editor in your browser and our client Duolingo is having their biggest repo opening in just one minute, which means that if they have someone to onboard and they have to configure environments or they want to change specific versions or they have a problem, like something is not responding, they can just restart the VM that is running inside the browser and be super fast and super productive cutting the onboarding times, not by 20%, by a lot of hundreds of minutes right there. That's awesome. So I want to talk a bit about security. So, you know, there's classical attacks that lots of people know about, you know, cross-site scripting, SQL injection. And now there's also this growing attack vectors around the open source supply chain, which you touched on a little bit earlier. And in fact, there's like a 650% year over year increase to attacks targeting the open source supply chain. So first, what are some of the common security concerns for companies developing software that I think like every engineer should be familiar with at the same level as like the SQL injection and the cross-site scripting attacks? I believe that secrets is a big one. 
And this is because 80% of the data breaches in the past year are attributed to secret credentials leaking. It's a big number. And in 2022, it's actually higher than it was before. This means that engineers should understand that secrets should be, first of all, generated with a very good source of randomness, but the most mistakes happen in how they are used. Let's offer a few examples for the technical audience listening to us today. Of course, you can have hard-coded credentials. If you are listening to this podcast right now, I give you the, I don't know, the excuse to pause, go in your code and do something about that because it's very dangerous. Hard-coded credentials that are being online, they can just be recognized straight away and they can be used. Another mistake that is not super clear right now is that, let's use this example here. Imagine you have a private key sitting at the top level here that you protect very well. But this private key is going to sign a JIT token sitting in the middle. It's an intermediary secret. They are both equally important. I see some engineers that are putting all the security on the top one because it's a private key. But the second one is an intermediary key right now. It's equally impactful negatively. So you should have the same security in both of those, making sure that you rotate them. For instance, you can have like 30 days, 60 days, maximum 90 days of rotations so that if something is compromised, you can still make sure that credentials are being isolated. Another good hygiene about credentials is to follow the principle of least privilege access, which is to give the minimum amount of accesses slash privileges needed so that if there's something negative there, then it's again isolated. Another big percentage is software vulnerabilities. Just before we touch on the on the software round, though, let's speak about what we do about the secrets. We are having secret scanning. It's a tool that is picking up secrets locally. This means that if you try to commit a token or if you try to commit a password, then it's gonna be picked up locally. It's not your secret is not gonna go on the public internet. You get the alert there. You are expected to go and remove it. And again, in last month at Universe, we announced secret scanning for generic passwords. Before that, we had some special patterns around 180 patterns. Imagine that, you know, okay, it's going to be a hex. It's going to look like this. And we were very good at picking it up. Last year alone, we picked up 30,000 of those secrets and they didn't make their way to public internet. But with AI, we can recognize secrets that are having unusual formats. It can be user passwords. This way, they are not gonna make their way to production, to internet. And then I hope next year, when I'm gonna see the data bridge report, the number is not 80%, but is lower. And if we move to other vulnerabilities I want to mention here, we still see some software classes, some software vulnerability classes that you mentioned SQL injection. It's still a thing. It's not eradicated and it's both surprising and I don't feel nice about that because people 
are expected to know about this by now. It's been 20 years. Instead of trying to educate everybody about every single security vulnerability in a rapidly evolving security world, I believe we should try to have a security mindset, understanding that when we write code, security vulnerabilities can naturally occur as the code progresses, as the code gets bigger there. And it's all about assuming the worst. No matter how good we think we are, how much training we had, the best practice is to have security tooling that is advanced, being able to pick up these problems before they make their way to production. And some numbers there is that we know that if people are using CICD, if they are using code scanning in their CICD, they have historically managed to prevent 50% of security vulnerabilities making their ways into production. This number will grow, hopefully, as we put security not shifting left, but starting from left. And as we use AI to help writing secure code from the beginning, because Copilot is expected to give you secure suggestions. We are taking steps in that direction with the security vulnerability filter, preventing vulnerable suggestions being given back to you. So just digging into the secret side again. Mm-hmm. So recently I gave a talk where I asked people to put up hands, how many people are still storing passwords in their database? And the answer was not zero. <laughs> there were some people. Nice. I didn't ask about secrets. Maybe next time I will. But in terms of secrets, like what is your recommendation in terms of how to handle secrets? So someone use essentially be leveraging like a secrets manager and then, you know, I am permissions where only one area of the like a lambda function or one area of the code base can basically talk to the secrets. So you're reducing essentially that the attack surface is that sort of the best practice that people should be following? Yeah. They should have a vault that is protecting their secrets, like a HashiCorp, for example, HashiCorp mm-hmm. vault. And the best practice is to have one person writing one secret and being give the chance to everybody in the organization. That's a bit bad here. I'm going to explain why it's bad. But one person should put the secret in and the people that should have access to that secret should be able to use it, read it, and so on. I corrected myself on the organization because back to the list privilege access, If we think about repo-level secrets, org-level secrets, then if you give org-level access to everybody, then maybe something is wrong there because I don't think there is a secret that everybody in an organization should have an access to. But even at repo-level, you can dissect the secret into environments. You can have a secret that is for the development environment and a secret that is for the production environment. It's all about the granularity. Even when you store the secrets, you should store them in a way that it's as secure as possible. And then how does the security around the CICD work? Like, what is it that the code scanning is doing when it's integrated in the CICD to prevent those types of vulnerabilities? I'm assuming it's going to check to see, do I have a hard-coded secret or a password in my code base? But is there something that's doing around, you know, checking for vulnerabilities in terms of the libraries that I'm using, you know, known compromised open source packages or something like that? That's a different check. It's not Mm -hmm. part of the static application security testing. Mm -hmm. The way that the SAS tool works, for instance, if we pick our SAS tool, which is CodeQL, standing for Code Query Language, Mm 
CodeQL builds an advanced relative database, which has connections between the code elements there so that understands where the user data flow, if they are certain traveling there. And these connections are helping to understand where are the sources of the vulnerability and where are the sinks of the vulnerability. So where are the problems that something starts to be dangerous and where something is actually executed and it's indeed being dangerous. When you have that static analysis, you are looking at the code is an inside approach. When you want to see about packages that are compromised, that are part of your library and transitive supply chain problems that you might have, we are having Dependable there, which is fueled by the GitHub advisory database. The GitHub advisory database is a human curated database where we accept community contributions and we make sure that we cross-check everything there. So we expect Dependabot to submit a pull request in order to fix the version of the dependency and library you might have so that your supply chain is not vulnerable anymore. When it comes to transitive dependencies, Dependable since the beginning of 2023 is able to help with JavaScript. We chose JavaScript because it's the ecosystem where Dependable could have the most impact. Dependable both by volume and by acceptances in the PRs has 80% of users in JavaScript. And with that transitive relation that Dependable is trying to focus on, we had an improvement of 42% eradicating the transitive problems out there for the two quarters that followed the announcement. Okay. And then a little while ago, there was this exploit that I read about where attackers were taking advantage of ChatGPT hallucinations. So essentially, the attacker would prompt ChatGPT for code to solve a particular problem. Sometimes ChatGPT would come back with a reference to a third-party package that doesn't actually exist. And then they would create that package. So that way, if an unsuspecting person later generated similar code, the package that shouldn't exist now exists. And then essentially that attacker could have the package do whatever they wanted. And it's not exactly what the person thinks it does. So on the side of GitHub Copilot, like how does GitHub Copilot stop such things happening in terms of like a hallucination leading to an attack vector like this? I think it's normal for every great technology to have dual use. Like if we think about email, we can use it daily for business communications, but at the same time, we can get fished from an email. Or spam, yeah. So what is in our hand to do and in our control is to make sure that before we provide something in front of our users, we are making the most in order to not provide them with dangerous or potentially harmful results. We are following the exact same ways that we are following internally for other products in order to secure AI. And of course, there are the responsible AI principles from Microsoft. And here's where our relationship becomes very important. We are following those standards of operating with AI And of course, as the time progresses, we are also learning and we are slowly eradicating those cases. Okay. And then 
In terms of how my code or you know potentially my customer data is treated by GitHub Copilot, what are the security and privacy controls like built directly into Copilot that make sure that you know I'm not accidentally leaking my core intellectual property to GitHub? That's a great question. When you have a business or an enterprise license, then GitHub retains nothing. We retain nothing. This means that your context, your code is not being known, is not used to help the model learn more. Your code is not being suggested to other clients or to other people in general. And even your prompts that you are asking things to co-pilot are just used in order to return an answer, a suggestion, and then they are being dropped. When it comes to the individual licenses, then every user has the ability to opt in or opt out at any stage from sharing analytics in the same way that this happens with every other mobile app, any other software in general, since the day I remember me using software. Yeah, so you can make the choice of contributing back as a way to help improve the product, but it's not something that you're forced to do. When you're an individual user, yes. But when you are a business or an enterprise, you don't even have the chance to contribute back. It's not even yeah. an option. Yeah, it makes sense. And then what is GitHub Copilot X and how is that different than the non-X version of GitHub Copilot? It's a good question. A lot of people thought that it's a product and were asking us, oh, when is X coming out? X is our vision. So in back in March, we shared our vision to bring AI in every step of the software development lifecycle. And this is exactly what we have done in the beginning of November in GitHub Universe with more use cases, bringing AI in more and more stages towards like more productivity, more satisfaction, more enhanced developer experience, and of course, security, as we started to bring also AI to parts of the security products that we have. Okay. And then, you know, as we start to wrap up, what's next for your work at GitHub? And is there anything else you'd like to share? I'm very excited about a game that I created in the past six months, and it has 3,000 users. It's going great. It accepts community contributions. And through these community contributions, we are going to release a second season, I hope, in the beginning of 2024. It's called Secure Code Game, and it's hosted inside GitHub Skills. The shortcut for people to find it is gh.io forward slash secure code game. I'm excited about that because it's impactful when it comes to developer education for software security. A problem I was seeing and I was super aspire to solve was that for many developers, security was boring oh, another security training, and we are going to click next, next, next. So we brainstormed internally, we spoke with users, and we came up with an experience that looks a lot like what they are doing daily. We give them code. Code is functional, but is vulnerable. And they have to first spot the problem and fix the problem. When they fix the problem, our exploits are not working anymore. But when they fix the problem in a way that the testing, the unit tests are still passing, it means that they can progress to the next level. In the first season that we released in beginning of April, 2023, we had a lot of 
levels in Python and a level in C. But in the next season, we are going to have JavaScript, GitHub Actions, Java, and different vulnerabilities every time. And the final reason I love this game is because many people think that it's enough to spot a problem. It's not enough to spot a problem. There are more problems that can get introduced to the code if you try to fix a problem, but you don't fix it correctly. So I don't want to say big words, but I start to see some results there and they are very encouraging. And I would like to say to anybody, if you have a few hours free during the festive season, or if you want to grow your skill set just by spending three, four hours there, gh.io forward slash secure code game, or just Google it, GitHub skills, and you can go there and find it. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll have to include that in the show notes. I think like using games as a way to educate people or even, you know, some of the things I've done where I've been able to combine like, you know, pop culture with computer science principles to kind of make it more accessible and more fun is a great way to help sort of bridge the gap of learning with things that feel maybe traditionally a little bit more like, I don't know, stuffy or boring or associated with, oh, I, I don't really want to do that. But you can make it fun if you put a little bit of effort into it. Exactly. So that's a talk I'm building for next year, actually. So how you can use gamification for things that maybe developers don't really enjoy and try to see some concepts there. Fun is a big one, like you mentioned. Well, awesome. I'm looking forward to maybe seeing a talk about this in the future. But Joseph, thanks so much for being here. And hopefully we get to see each other sometime again in person at one of these events. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this pod with you. All right. Thank you and cheers. Cheers.